everybody, and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani and I.E. Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And I have a great show for you today. My guest will be Kate Fullman. Full, I'm sorry, Fulham. She's the Executive Director of the East End Food Institute, and I'm going to tell you more about her when she joins us in just a little bit. But first, I want to share with you some things going on in and around the area, some things in the news, and of course, my weekly recipe. So first, I want to just share with you what's been going on here at the IE Green Homestead, and uh, I have been really busy organizing my 25th annual Thanksgiving food drive and food feast for the needy. And we've been doing this in collaboration with the River Fund New York Food Pantry for the past 24 years. This will be our 25th year. And for all these years, we've been going to Rufus King Park in Jamaica, Queens, and serving the food. Well, this year, a few weeks ago, I got a call from the River Fund saying we're having a problem getting a permit to serve the food in the park. Now, when we serve the food, we are really just partnering with the River Fund, who has an ongoing program in Rufus King Park. Every two weeks, they have a mobile food pantry, and they serve that community. And so the th- Tuesday before Thanksgiving, we tag on and we serve you know, food, a hot, homemade Thanksgiving meal for anywhere from 700 to 1,000 people. So this year, they're not getting a permit, and the rumor is the reason they're not getting the permit is because Jamaica Hospital, which has been closed down for many years, has been converted into condos, and now the people in those condos or the developer do not want to attract needy people to the park that is across the street. So we've been scrambling and trying to get connections to get permission to be in the park, and it was getting down to the wire. We didn't have anywhere to go. I was getting ready to cancel the whole project. Meanwhile, it's not so easy. I've had a doodle doc up online for a few months already, signing people up. I have over 100 people that come through my home over the weekend to help prepare this food for 1,000 people. So finally, um, just on Tuesday, they decided to bring the food to a different location where they also have a mobile food pantry, and these are the Pink Houses, a a housing project in East New York, Brooklyn. And so now we're going there. Meanwhile, someone made a connection to a congressman who thinks they can help us get a permit because this is going to come up again for Christmas. So anyway, it's a a saga to be decided. Um, We'll see how it pans out. But for this Thanksgiving, instead of serving the community around Rufus King Park, which we have done for the past 24 years. We will be going to a new community at the Pink Houses in East New York and serving our Thanksgiving feast there. So um, after we finish our show today, I will head out and start collecting the turkeys and all the food that's needed to make this event actually happen. But it's really exciting and um We're so glad we actually found a place because we were a little panicked as to what we were going to do. So there's still some um, spots to sign up if you're interested. I know I am still looking for volunteers for Monday night, which is the night before we serve. Um, There's always, you know, hot turkeys coming out late at night that need to be carved. So if you are available to volunteer, you can sign up um, 
there's a doodle doc on my website, um, and we'd love to have you. It's under events if you're looking on my website. Also coming up on December 11th, uh, the Green New Meal is part of the um, Climate Crisis Wednesdays going on at the Brooklyn Public Library. And the Food Climate Connection um, will be the topic for the Green New Meal. And I will be the um, facilitator and there will be a panel discussion. And it should be great. So if you can make it to the Brooklyn Public Library on December 11th, um, that should be a great event. And then volunteering for our Christmas event starts on Sunday, December 15th. And I will be putting together a doodle document for that as well, so you can sign up there. Um, I was waiting, actually, to just find out if, if the program was going to continue or if we, whether we were going to be canceling it. I want to ask you all to save the date for the NOFA New York's Winter Conference, which is quickly approaching January 17th to the 19th. And um, January 24th to February 2nd is the Real Truth About Health 10-Day Conference, which takes place out at the New, uh, out at the Hilton in Farmingdale, and it is, or actually I think it's Melville, um, but it's a 10-day conference, and the caliber of speakers that they get for this conference is just amazing. So um, keep your eyes open for the Real Truth About Health Conference because that's really worthwhile. It's free. They give out free vegan food, and it's just absolutely delightful. So um, anyway... I hope you can make it. I just put a few take actions on my newsletter this week. One is to ask Governor Cuomo to pass the Child Safe Products Act. Um, believe it or not, we are still uh, making toys and car, car seats and safety products for kids that are really not safe. So um, this bill has been um, proposed and we are waiting. You know, it's passed the the houses, and now we're just waiting for Governor Cuomo to sign it. So um, please sign the petition that I have up there. And I'm all, there's also a petition to protect farm workers from toxic chemicals because the Environmental Protection Agency is at it again. I mean, this Environmental Protection Agency that is set up to protect the environment and us, the people, is really... Um, getting turned around in this current administration, and it's really about protecting and giving green lights to industry producers and making the regulations easier and the loopholes more apparent so that they can get away with doing whatever they want, regardless of people's safety or environmental safety. So um, please sign the the petition there to protect farm workers from the weakening regulations in how we spray pesticides and herbicides. And um, what else? Oh, oh, the EPA is also limiting scientific um, data for making new regulations. They're now going to in. They are now going to require um, any scientific research to provide all the raw data, which would include people's personal information, which would be against the Personal Privacy Act. So um, it's going to make it really impossible, and some of this might even go become retroactive to undo some of the standards and safety protections that we have 
Um, you know, so again, this current administration is doing whatever they can to undo science and and just go from their gut. Anything that's good for business is good for them, and we know better than that. So we need everybody to become active participants and you know do what we can to turn the EPA around and make them do what they're supposed to do, which is protect us. So I want to share with you my stuffed heirloom pumpkin recipe. There's so many varieties of pumpkins you can get now, um, the, from the Long Island cheese pumpkin to the Cinderella princess pumpkin, um, which is really beautiful looking. Um, even kabucha squashes can be used for this. You know, a sweet pumpkin is, you know, really can make a difference when you're stuffing a pumpkin. Um, because the vegetables are going to cook inside of this pumpkin and become sweeter and juicier from the flavor of the pumpkin. So this is a recipe I've shared before, and this time of year for Thanksgiving, I like to share some of my favorite Thanksgiving recipes. Um, Instead of pulling out a turkey, you can pull out this stuffed pumpkin, which is just such a um, beautiful centerpiece. It really makes a statement when you put it out on the table, and you can serve right out of the pumpkin, so it's beautiful. So you're going to get a large organic pumpkin. I used seitan in this recipe, um, one and a half pounds of seitan, but you can also use tempeh or tofu if you're gluten-free and, um, you know, just sear it before you add it to the um, pot. You know, the seitan is really already cooked, so you don't really have to sear it the same way. Um, You're going to use one onion chopped, four carrots that you can cut into wedges for like a stew, one pound of mushrooms, sliced, and you can use shiitake or portobello's, um, chicken of the woods, whatever mushrooms you'd like, two yellow squash, one butternut squash, one sweet potato cut into chunks, two red or yellow peppers, one head of broccoli cut up, four parsnips, a half of a napa cabbage, two bok choys, a quarter cup of tamari. Tamari is a um, seasoned soy sauce that is gluten-free. Um, it's made without wheat, and it's aged a little bit more than regular soy sauce, and it's just delicious. So I use t- tamari all the time. Four cloves of garlic, a two-inch piece of ginger that you're going to grate, two tablespoons of aji marin, which is a sweet rice wine. And when you're looking for aji marin, Kikoman, the brand that makes soy sauce, they make an aji marin that is really not traditional aji marin. If you look at the ingredients, it's just glucose syrup, and that is not what you want. You really want to get, like Eden makes a very good aji marin. It's a sweet rice wine, and so it just has a seaweed in it and rice and that's and water, and that's all it should have in it. Two tablespoons of tahini that you're going to mix with one cup of water, and that's going to help um, create a gravy for all these vegetables to stew in. One package of frozen peas. That's a small package. One pound of potatoes cut into chunks, two sprigs of rosemary, and two sprigs of thyme. And you're going to cut out a circle in the top of the pumpkin and scrape out the seeds and then replace the top of the pumpkin. And you're going to place the pumpkin in a shallow baking pan with a little water on the bottom. Make a tent with aluminum foil over the top of the pumpkin to prevent it from burning. And you're going to bake the pumpkin in a 300-degree oven for about an hour and a half to two hours till it starts to get soft. It will finish cooking when you um, stuff it with the vegetables, but you need to give it a head start because it takes a long time to cook the pumpkin. 
Meanwhile, while that's cooking, you're going to saute the onions, the carrots, the butternut squash, the parsnips and the potatoes and the sweet potatoes in a stock pot with a little bit of olive oil. You're going to add the garlic and ginger, and you're going to cook that for about 10 minutes. And if it starts to stick, you can add you know, a little bit of water at a time, like a couple tablespoons at a time, and help steam the vegetables. Um, but these are all the root and really hard vegetables that you want to give a head start to. Then you're going to add the broccoli, the mushrooms, the peppers, the yellow squash, the bok choy, the cabbage, and the herbs, and any other vegetables you want. And just know that you can sub out any of these vegetables and replace them with others. Um, you know, use whatever you have in the house or whatever you love. And you're going to cook that up for a little bit. You're going to add the tahini and the water mixture, along with the mirin, the tamari, and the frozen peas. Then you can add the seitan and cook that down for about 20 minutes. And you're just really letting it stew and letting all those uh, flavors come together. When the pumpkin's ready, you're going to pull it out of the oven. You're going to stuff it with all those vegetables and return it to the oven for another 30 minutes, allowing the pumpkin to finish cooking and for the flavors of the pumpkin to get into the sauce and vice versa. And then you're going to serve it right out of the pumpkin. And a lot of the inside of the pumpkin is also really good to scoop out and serve with this. And the the tahini has made a really nice um, juice and gravy in this dish that can be used on your mashed potatoes and stuffing. Um, And it's really delicious. If you'd like, you can also add a little nutritional yeast to the gravy um, just to thicken it up a little bit. And that's a nice addition as well. And that's it. If you make the recipe, I love feedback, so please feel free to um, to give me a little write-up on my either on Facebook or on my um, website and let me know how you liked it. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to all of you Kate Fulham. She is the Executive Director of the East End Food Institute, which is a nonprofit organization in Southampton whose mission is to support promote and advocate for local food and local producers throughout eastern Long Island. Prior to joining the East End Food Institute, Kate built her career at Group for the East End and Southampton Hospital, which is now Stony Brook Southampton Hospital, and most recently at the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. And Kate's wide range of experience with local and regional issues related to environment, economy, science, and human health are now united toward the goal of creating a more sustainable and equitable local food system at the East End Food Institute. So I'm so happy to have her here. Kate, are you with me? Yes, I am. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to have you here. Yes, um, great to connect and um, really a lot of exciting things happening. It's like the harvest season, so <laughs> feeling it really is. I love so, the recipes um, that you're sharing and the community involvement. Thank you. Well, tell us what's going on at the East End F- Institute. Um, how, you know, what is going on there with the holidays, and why don't you just give us a little history first about the East End Food Institute? Because it used to be called the Amagansett Food Institute, correct? Yes, that's right. Um, so in 2010, uh, a group of friends who were really appreciative of local food at Namagansett um, got together. They had like a dinner club and they started talking about the fact that it's really difficult to run a farm or a food business on Long Island and especially on the East End where the cost of land and the cost of living is so high. 
and they felt that um, an organization could be formed to help support, promote, and advocate for those local producers. Um, and so the Amagansett Food Institute was born. Um, the organization actually was um, involved with the uh, Amagansett Farmers Market, and then um, the founders uh, of Amber Waves Farm out in Amagansett actually took that over. Um, they were the uh, part of the founding group um, of Amagansett Food Institute as well. So there's a nice connection still to Amagansett with uh, Katie Baldwin and Amanda Marrow from Amber Waves Farm, and we still coordinate a lot with them, even though we're now located in Southampton on the Stony Brook Southampton campus and doing a lot of work in food processing uh, using the commercial kitchen in that space. So when did it change from the Amagansett Food Institute to the East End Food Institute? Well, I came on about two years ago. I'm coming up on my two-year anniversary. I started January 2018. And at that time, the organization was Amagansett Food Institute. Um, We were located in Southampton primarily. And um, really, the organization was making a shift and saying, okay, We've um, done a lot of good work so far. We've seen what programs are sticking, and there's a lot of opportunity to move forward and make more of an impact to our mission. But um, there was a lot of confusion that needed to be cleared up in terms of, okay, what exactly does this organization do? And its name was part of the confusion as well. So the board decided um, to change the name, and uh, we actually just completed that process and jumped through all the the bureaucratic hoops of uh, paperwork to change our name in in the uh, spring and um, completed that over the summer and fall this year. Mm -hmm. And how is it different than a food policy council? Is it because you're not working with government or is it, you know, how are you doing similar things to a, a food policy council? Um, Well, my impression, um, without being super familiar with the Food Policy Council, is that um, that's more about food access issues. Is that an accurate um, assumption? It's it's one of the issues. It's one of the issues. Well, so I'll comment on what we do, which is um, really looking at the food system within the context of supporting the people that are involved in it. Um, So uh, the ways that Uh, we look at that is to create a more sustainable food system and equitable food system. And the three pillars that we work with are um, economy, which would impact the ability for uh, sustaining agriculture and food business, Uh, environment, which has a really wonderful ripple effect when you buy local um, to impacting land conservation, reducing food miles, um, increasing nutrient density, and that's where the third pillar comes in, which is human health, Um, really making sure that it's not just people who can afford local food that tends to be a little bit higher in price um, from the cost of doing business and the cost of land, et cetera, but that everyone can afford that. So, We've been looking at um, implementing the recommendations of a food hub feasibility study that was completed in 2015 by the uh, Amagansett Food Institute at the time. Um, And we really would like to create uh, a a micro food hub uh, with the East End Food Institute to um, 
really be a centralized location on the East End for aggregation, processing, and distribution of local foods and just make it easier uh, to have anybody within the food system and in the community access that food. Mm-hmm. And um, to go on, just to veer off a little bit to a more personal end, what led you to the nonprofit world? How did you get involved? Well, um, when I graduated in 2004 um, with a Bachelor of Science in Marine Science, I had uh, gone to Long Island University in Southampton, which ironically is the campus that we are now on as East End Food Institute. Um, my mailbox is actually still in the basement of the building that we're in. Um, I, I graduated and I thought, well, you know, I could go and get my PhD and become a researcher in marine science. I could be a teacher. I could go be a doctor, or veterinarian. Um, but I really just had this keen interest in science and dissecting um, problems. And I think that led me, um, I had two job offers upon my uh, graduation. One was to go sell pharmaceuticals, and one was to work for a group for the East End, which is a nonprofit environmental advocacy and education organization. And um, I thought, well, I could I could make a lot of money selling pharmaceuticals, but um, I really wanted to have uh, work that was fulfilling for me. is very important. And so I went into the nonprofit world, and uh, I was hooked. I I love using my science background to um, survey a problem, a system, create um, organization out of chaos, (laughs) oftentimes, as uh, the nonprofit world dictates. And and I just really uh, love that fulfilling work. (laughs) No shortage of problems in the nonprofit world, right? Yeah, but I think that's really the beauty of the sector is that um, for – Government, they, you know, it has to make good sense financially and you're using public dollars oftentimes uh, for private business. The business model has to make sense. It has to make money. But for the nonprofit world, you can leverage public dollars to solve problems. And I think that's really why I'm hooked into the sector is that you can, you have the power to solve problems that it just makes no sense to solve. (laughs) Uh, in terms mm-hmm. of following the money. Right. So let's go back to the three pillars that we were just talking about, the economy, the environment, and human health. So in those focus areas, how does the East End Food Institute work with those different pillars? How does it affect the economy? How does it affect the environment? And how does it affect human health? Um, well, the economy is one area that's been really interesting for us because we've seen a lot of uh, growth in production in our kitchen. Uh, we actually are certified at the kitchen uh, by the Department of Agriculture and Markets, New York State, and we uh, produce products for farms. So uh, I was talking about Amber Waves Farm in Amagansett as a good example They had a lot of cherry tomatoes in excess, as cherry tomato plants tend to produce a lot. Um, They sent hundreds of pounds our way into the kitchen, and then we slow-roasted those tomatoes, and we put them in jars so that they would still be a usable product, but that, you know, we wouldn't have to find a consumer that was going to eat that product fresh. So 
what in the in the business of food, this is called a value added product. So you take a tomato that you could sell for a certain amount of money, but you add value to it by making it into a product. And then the farm can actually make more money off of that value added product and um, really improve their business model and sustain their ability um, to make money. Mm -hmm. Um, And do you have a a (laughs) full-time chef at the kitchen that does that for them, or do they rent the kitchen space and come in, or do you do it both ways? We do it both ways. Um, In fact, the first year, actually first two seasons, I spent a lot of time in the kitchen, so um, kind of looking at my uh, background with science, um, food manufacturing is much different than being a chef sometimes where um, you actually have to standardize recipes and make it replicable each time, um, file a lot of food safety paperwork and record keeping. Um, So we do have a chef now, thank goodness for me, (laughs) Um, but I can um, really function more as the executive director. And uh, we also do rent space to small food entrepreneurs, small businesses that maybe don't want to invest in the infrastructure uh, to have their own kitchen. Mm-hmm. And how does that work? Um, do they get a separate space? Do they have a permanent like shelf in the kitchen? Or do they just bring everything in each time that they use it? How does that work? Um, well, we like to call it kind of a choose-your-own-adventure because uh, we do have space where people can rent refrigeration or dry storage if they, um, you know, have a regular production and they don't want to bring in their food <coughs> or ingredients and, uh, you know, packaging and all of that stuff. Uh, but sometimes when someone's just getting started, they, they do want to handle it that way. Um, we have an hourly rate, and then we also have time-based plans, um, depending, again, on the amount of usage or the stage of the company. Um, the best way I could explain it is, um, to me, the analogy of a yoga class. Um, if you go to yoga one time, you might be paying 20 or $25, but if you buy the package because you know you're committing to it, you'll save a little money over time. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it really depends, and I try to work with, food entrepreneurs at different stages to meet with them and figure out what's going to be the best uh, plan for them. Mm-hmm. Um, when I came out to visit the site, I remember we were talking about some of the processing you're doing. Um, you know, I think we, we talked about potatoes, for instance. Like when I'm cooking for the homeless, you know, we get 300 pounds of potatoes, and I know how long it takes my volunteers to scrub those 300 pounds of potatoes. It's a lot of potatoes and cutting it and prepping it. It takes a really long time. And, you know, as a farm-to-school coordinator for a local public school, you know, I want to bring in more fresh vegetables, but the time element in processing it takes so much time. So um, we had talked about how your kitchen is doing some of that processing for um, some schools. Can you share that with my listeners and tell them how that works? Um, yeah, well, it kind of ties into a couple uh, different grant applications that we've been pursuing recently. Um, we also know how long it takes to hand process lots of potatoes. Last season, we had 1,600 pounds of potatoes. I think it was two pallets worth of potatoes. <laughs> um, oh, my God. That came into the kitchen. And fortunately, you know, we have um, staff in the kitchen, and we also engaged volunteers. Um, to get that, and we worked with um, 
<clears throat> the Long Island Cares Harry Chapin Food Bank to come and pick up um, the pallets of finished product. Um, but what we've been doing is um, looking for funding to increase our capacity by investing in equipment uh, that would help us to process more efficiently those uh, surplus crops and help the farms to make money uh, and have buyers for uh, their surplus and even what they call seconds, which is, you know, a piece of produce that, you know, maybe doesn't have the exact look that you might want, um, but it still tastes delicious. Um, yeah, there's a whole so movement, applied, ugly, uh, ugly fruit, right? Ugly fruit or ugly produce. Right, yeah, it's still delicious. It's just, you know, maybe the, the carrot twisted around another carrot <laughs> or something. Um, right. So we, we applied for funding um, through the USDA Local Food Promotion Program. We're waiting to hear back on that um, to invest in some equipment and to offset um, the staff time to really untangle some of the issues around um, aggregation, distribution, and, um, you know, processing of local food. And we also, um, speaking of the farm-to-school coordinator, recently submitted an application to the um, Department of Agriculture and Markets in New York State with uh, three schools on the east end of Long Island, uh, Southampton Union Free School District, Chuckahoe Common School District, and uh, Bridgehampton School District for the East End Farm to School Project, which has really gained a lot of traction in terms of uh, community support, um, administration, staff at those schools, and really um, is looking to take it to the next level to figure out, okay, yeah, how do we get that food into a school, a hospital, um, into local restaurants, um, and how do we make it affordable? And, you know, that really goes back to what we were saying about nonprofits. It's um, it's difficult to figure out how to level out the pricing, and we're still doing a lot of work on that uh, with schools and with others. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, it's what we all want, but the schools are so bound by the finances of how much it costs and how little money they get per student for serving the meals, and it's just, you know, it's just hard to imagine. I mean, it's a dollar... I don't know, it might be up to a dollar forty or something, but it's still very little. Um, exactly. But it doesn't make sense that, um, for example, I spoke to one school recently, and the chef said, look, here's the thing. It doesn't make sense. I can get my apples for a really low cost. And when he looked at where they were sourced from, it was New Zealand. I mean, I just I don't understand how right, that's working. Right. Um, so we've got to um, we've got to leverage, I think, the nonprofit sector to uh, untangle the knots that we've created within the food system. And you know, fortunately, on the east end of Long Island, we have many willing partners, and uh, you know, yourself included, as someone to kind of broadcast the the word about this. Um, mm-hmm. But just to really figure out, okay, well, what are the obstacles? What do we know? What do we need to know? How can we level it out? Do we need to apply for grant funding or leverage public dollars to offset the cost of operating the system and to make it make sense again? Right, right. And so I know you've mentioned you, you know, you're working with, um, you know, the local schools. But what other partners are you working with to help create this reality? <laughs> 
Well, um, it really falls down to um, aggregation of products um, and processing and distribution. So the aggregation piece is important because on Long Island, there's many uh, smaller farms that may not be able to um, produce a large volume to accommodate a school or another institution. But if we are the intermediary at East End Food Institute, then we could figure out, okay, what does the school need or what does the institution need or who the buyer is? What do they need? And then be able to um, get that product from multiple locations. Um, and aggregation is really important piece as well, um, getting the amount of product that you need from multiple locations, because um, a lot of institutions, schools included, require um, GAP certification, which is getting a little technical, but basically it's good agricultural practices. It's a certification to make sure that the food is safe, that um, the farms are, you know, have uh, the appropriate wash facilities and um, bathrooms available and things like that, that the food uh, would not be contaminated. Well, a lot of farms that are small are doing the right things, but they're um, not able to keep up with the paperwork because that would even increase the cost more of their product to hire someone to do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So if we can um, pass that product through our kitchen and make sure that it is washed properly and, um, you know, handled and processed properly, we're working on um, vacuum sealing and freezing minimally processed uh, produce to be able Mm -hmm. to be used, and then it takes the food safety risk out. Um, So that's kind of where where we're looking at in terms of aggregation, processing, again, needing better equipment to make it streamlined and um, reduce the cost uh, of processing. And then the distribution, we've actually had a great um, pilot partnership with Haskell Seafood that uh, is a company in East Quag. They're called Kate, I'm sorry, Haskell. I didn't hear. Who do you have that partnership with? Um, <clears throat> it's called Haskell's Seafood, H-A-S-K-E-L-L, Haskell, Peter Haskell. Uh-huh. He is in East Quag, and he has a business that he's uh, actually taking in underutilized seafood like a porgy or skate or blowfish and uh, finding markets for the underutilized seafood. So that would be similar to what we're doing with surplus crops or um, the imperfect produce, Um, just kind of creating a shift in the market um, to improve access to local food. And he has distributed a lot of our product for us to, for us to be able to test, you know, do we partner with a lot of distribution partners or do we get our own refrigerated vehicle and driver? Um, you know, so we're testing the logistics on that piece as well. It's pretty complicated. Yeah. It is, you know, in, um, you know, almost in any business, you know, in how do you grow it so that it stays profitable? Sometimes you grow it so much that the expenses become so high that, even though you're growing, you're losing money, <laughs> and that you do right. better small. Um, yeah, it's it's really complicated. Anyway, uh, Kate, let's take a couple minute break, um, okay. and when we come back, 
um, I want to talk about some of the products that you are making in the shared kitchen and, um, and a little bit more about how you're funded. So everyone, don't go anywhere. I'm talking with Kate Fulham from the East End Food Institute. Be right back. Thanks. You're listening to PRN, number one for progressive minds. I'm Celia Farber. And I'm Christina Borgeson. We're the hosts of a brand new show, The Whistleblower Newsroom, right here on PRN. This is a show for and about whistleblowers. And by us, two investigative reporters brutally hammered for uncovering cover-ups and media corruption. This show is for whistleblowers who stand up for the truth and face devastating consequences, who document facts and risk their lives and livelihoods to bring those facts to the public. They come from all walks of life, government, science, journalism, academia, and many other fields. They'll be safe, warm, and welcome here on the Whistleblower Newsroom every Friday morning, 10 a.m., right here on PRN. Stay tuned to PRN.FM for more empowering ideas from progressive voices. We're moving forward, and we hope you're coming with us. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and I am the host of The Love Code. As a naturopathic doctor, psychotherapist, author, lecturer, and lifelong spiritual seeker, The Love Code is an opportunity to expand inspiration, transformation, and rejuvenation in your life. Every Saturday morning, I have inspiring conversations with people who are living extraordinary lives dedicated to service, dedicated to healing, and dedicated to transforming consciousness on this planet. If you're ready for your dose of inspiration, transformation, and rejuvenation, then I invite you to join me every Saturday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time on The Love Code. See you there. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to I Eat Green with Bhavani. If you are just joining us, my guest today is Kate Fulham. She's the executive director of the East End Food Institute. And we were just going to talk about the commercial kitchen that they have at the Stony Brook Southampton campus. And, Kate, can you tell us um, what kind of products are you currently making in your kitchen, both um, just with your organization and then also some of your um, uh, partners who rent the kitchen space? Sure. Uh, well, we um, had a great partnership that started uh, two summers ago with Wolfer Estate Vineyard. Um, we uh, worked with a woman there called Sue Ellen Tunney. She's actually since um, moved over to McCall Vineyard on the North Fork as their general, general manager. But um, Sue Ellen and the crew at Wolfer were really interested in improving the local offerings on the winery tasting room menu. And 
this is a great example of, um, you know, a, a partnership nonprofit to for-profit. Um, Wolfer identified that they had the buying power. Uh, they have a lot of visitors. They go through a lot of volume at the tasting room and that they were able to impact the local food system as a buyer. Um, so they asked us to come up with some products. Um, one, we looked at the menu and we uh, saw that they were um, bringing in like these cornichon little pickles and we thought, could we change that to a local pickled vegetable and flex with the seasons? Um, so we've made a lot of different pickled vegetables for them. And then um, one of our favorite products is the, the Wolfer um, collaboration. We made a tomato jam that replaced quince paste on their uh, cheese plates. And I can't even tell you, people went nuts for this tomato jam. <laughs> it's been um, really interesting. And we all know that tomatoes are plenty on Long Island. Um, we, we source from Twin Fork Growers, um, which is in uh, Wading River, as well as Wickham's Fruit Farm on the North Fork in Kutchog. Um, we get beefsteak tomatoes, and we make this spiced tomato jam, and people just love it. I've had people call me from California, Pennsylvania, all over the country asking about this tomato jam, which just really cracks me up. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, um, we're actually going to be selling that at the Riverhead Farmer's Market, which starts uh, next weekend, the Saturday after Thanksgiving, November 30th. So uh, is that a Wolfers product or is it an East End Food Institute product? That is an East End Food Institute product, and we sell it to Wolfer, and they portion that out onto their tasting plates um, at the at the wine stand uh, and at the tasting room in Sagaponic. Mm-hmm. And do you have um, products that you're marketing? Pardon? Do you have that you now are marketing as an East End Food Institute product? Um, most of the time, we actually stay behind the scenes. Um, we like to elevate our partners. Um, so if we're making products for Amberwave's Farm or the Milk Pail or the Green Thumb Farm um, or any other place, we like them to be able to put their label on it. Mm-hmm. So um, we really like to support and elevate those other uh, partners, but we do have some products. Uh, sometimes we'll we'll put our label on it. Um, we make dressings, hummus, um, you know, all different uh, types of value-added products, pickles, things like that. That can either be branded as East End Food Institute or uh, can be branded by the local farm or um, you know other institutional partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and with hummus, is there a a farm that's growing chickpeas? Um, actually, no. So all of our brands, the farm stand favorites, we call them, are produce forward. So uh, hummus, we have a roasted beet hummus. Um, each has just a little bit of chickpeas in it, and we're looking to replace the um, chickpea with maybe like a white bean, doing some recipe testing um, in the next year about really even localizing that even more. But we have a sweet potato mint hummus, a roasted beet jalapeno hummus, and a carrot, um, a carrot harissa hummus as well. Oh, lovely, lovely. So chickpeas is not the main ingredient in many of the hummuses that you're making. That's right, yeah. We always try to have the first ingredient by weight um, be the produce. Uh-huh. And how do you spread the word about um, 
the East End Food Institute? How do you get it out there? Well, we have a newsletter, um, and people could sign up and get more information at eastendfood.org. Um, we also are on Instagram. Our Instagram account's really active, and that's just the handles at East End Food. Um, and, you know, just engaging community partners. We participate in a lot of events, and um, similar to the way that we approach food production, we try to... Um, we try to support and elevate others rather than kind of putting ourselves out there in the front. Um, so we attend a lot of partner events. We um, we help to run workshops in partnership with other organizations out of our space. Uh, for example, Stony Brook Southampton uh, Hospital. We teach medical residents and other practitioners and patients how to cook um, local foods and stay healthy. Uh, we work with a clinical nutritionist in that way. And we also offer cooking classes um, out of our space in partnership with <clears throat> um, Slow Food East End, which has a lot of uh, interested members that want to learn about how to use local food. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Slow Food, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about that as well. I run the local Absolutely. Slow Food chapter here. And, um, yeah, it's wonderful to have those partnerships. You know, it really elevates everybody, right, when you work exactly. together. Exactly. It's much easier to operate in a silo, honestly. Um, and sometimes even for, for me, I really enjoy partnerships and building community. Um, it can be tiring, you know, um, but I think we're all better together. And, um, you know, everybody's trying to do their best in, um, in the nonprofit world makes the world a better place, you know. Yeah. So. And the nonprofits I'm working with, it seems like so much funding has dried up and they're having a hard time. How are you doing with that? How are you getting your funding and are you finding funding available? Yeah, I mean, some of our um, operating costs are offset by the work that we do in producing products. So those programs generate revenue um, when we make products in the kitchen. Um, we do, as you alluded to before, rent out kitchen space to small, uh, small-scale food entrepreneurs, so that offsets some of our operating costs. Um, but we do rely on grant funding and um, individual donations as well as business memberships. So um, we really try to build community around um, you know, organizing local businesses to say, even if you're a landscaping company or... Um, you know, another a restaurant or something that may not be using our, our kitchen services, um, you could still be part of the food community because that's what brings a lot of people here and sustains a lot of tourism business on the East End. So um, really anybody that likes local food and wants it to, you know, continue to have farms and food businesses and uh, vibrancy to the area, we invite them to, you know, make a donation and, and join our organization. Mm-hmm. Now, I was perusing your website, and you have a program called the Apprenticeship Matching Program. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, definitely. So one of the ways that we support uh, farms and uh, is and actually food producers, Haskell Seafood actually was involved in apprentice matching um, as, a, as a seafood company. We, um, we found that it sometimes can be difficult due to the cost of living, um, to recruit new uh, apprentices and new workers into the food system on the East End, especially agriculture. And so 
there actually has been a resurgence of, I guess you could say, millennials that, um, you know, want to get back to the land, uh, back to basics, and learn about where their food comes from and actually participate in that. So um, apprentice matching has been around for a long time, but we actually um, we get information from our local farm partners about what type of workers they're looking for, whether they can just be completely um, inexperienced or if they have to have experience in a certain um, operating a tractor or with livestock or um, whatever that farm needs. And then we market that to different um, opportunities online or with um, universities that are training um, students in agriculture to try to bring um, new people and perspectives to the area and continue to sustain um, a really qualified, uh, efficient group of apprentices and workers in the agricultural system. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's almost like a dating service, but <laughs> for And is it an ongoing rolling um, process or is it like, you know, people apply at a certain time and then it goes through the, you know, the matching process? Or is it um, well, it sort ongoing? of goes with the growing season. So right now a lot of farms are identifying, okay, you know, recap after the season. Okay, what do we need for next season? What are our goals? So um, there's a lot of uh, postings that are uh, being sent our way at this moment, and then we'll start to market those. So if anyone's listening and they're really interested in becoming a farm apprentice, um, you could go to our website, eastendfood.org, and there's a page on there about the apprentice matching service and an application where um, the apprentice can, uh, you know, fill out what they're looking for and see if if there's match. Um, I know you touched on this, you know, how expensive it is to live out there. Do these apprenticeship programs come with um, living accommodations or do people have to um, apprentice and support themselves in renting a place? Um, Well, it's all different. Um, We do have that as a question both for the apprentice host as well as the prospective um, applicant. So um, that's where, you know, it's not a um, computer-generated match. Um, Our program coordinator actually goes through all the applications as well as the opportunities based on what she also knows about those partners and interviews the prospective apprentice to see uh, where that person might be best matched and then um, makes that connection. But uh, you know, housing sometimes is included, sometimes not, and um, we try to make uh, connections where needed to, you know, accommodate and, and make a match. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a lot of work. I assumed it was computer-generated, but to go through all <laughs> of that and do all the interviewing, that's a, that I'm sure is a huge help to the farmers because I know how much time that takes for somebody to... Find the right. right. I mean, person. even for a for-profit business, hiring is very expensive. It takes a lot of time to go through the applications, to schedule interviews, to really um, determine who's going to be the right fit. And so we take a little bit of the work out of that for the local farms who, you know, they have to be planning what their whole season's going to look like, ordering seeds, planning their um their crops and timelines and, um, you know, the workers are obviously a big part of their success as well, but um, if we can take some of that uh, weight off their shoulders, then I think 
it, it has helped a lot. We've had some good feedback from that program. I would think so. I know for me, you know, I always get um, some helpers for the summer, but my problem is, you know, they leave the end of August when they have to go back to school. And so, you know, when the harvest time comes, which, as we all know, who are out there, is so much of the work, um, I find I'm overwhelmed because my helpers have usually left by that point. And so, um, yeah, that I think that's a problem for a lot of businesses um, that experience a seasonal um, swell. Because <laughs> right. say, I mean, even the restaurants and uh, you know every place out here on the east end, there's like <laughs> the exodus of uh, college kids <laughs> at the end of the summer. So. Um, you know, the farms also indicate um, do they need someone that's going to stay through a certain time period, and, you know, that's part of the match as well. There's a lot of variables to making the right fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure also the the issue with um, with immigrants and, you know, getting foreign apprentices. You know, there used to be, I forget the name of the program, but, you know, where, you know, um, young people from Australia and New Zealand, you know, they would come and travel here and get work permits for the summer. And that's been really difficult for um, that program as well. So I can imagine how hard it is for so many of those seasonal uh, farms to find the right workers. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something that we don't get involved in that part of the process. Um, We're looking at really just... um, the quality of the applicant, the match in terms of, you know, housing needed or time frame or skills. And then uh, the farm and the prospective apprentice can talk with each other and kind of work out the nitty gritty details. But yeah, that's definitely an issue, um, you know, related to apprentice matching, but also farm workers in general and the wages, um, you know, minimum wage hike really has had uh, an impact on um on the seasonality, uh, you know, with with farms. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of challenges to running a farm business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but our agricultural history on Long Island is very strong, and I'm hopeful that, you know, we can play a small part in the process of helping that well, to be sustained and getting creative um, in the way Well, you definitely are. I mean, the feedback I hear, you know, that you definitely are making inroads. Have you found that um, the the East End Food Institute has become like a hub, a, you know, a food hub for the East End. Um, I know that's what you're working towards. Do you feel like you're getting there? Um, in terms of our programmatic impact, I feel like we have more focus um, it, over the last two years. I think that comes with just me becoming more familiar um, with the organization as I grow within it. And, Um, You know, building partnerships, I think we have carved out a niche for ourselves. Uh, We have a long way to go in terms of building the infrastructure, and um, I'm anxious to hear back from the USDA um, grant application in that regard. Uh, But we did have some good news that we were recommended for Empire State Development funding, um, and the governor would sign off on that in December. Um, So... You know, we're we're trying to approach it from a lot of different angles, and it's uh, like I said, a complicated problem to solve. But um, we're trying to lean into improving infrastructure. So, uh, in terms of a hub of information, I think the answer is yes. We we have um, built our reputation. People are starting to know um, the work that we're 
doing and trying to build on. And um, that feels really good. And it, I think my personal perspective on life is to support and elevate others. And um, this, this organization is allowing me to do that professionally as well. So I feel pretty humbled by the whole thing, <laughs> to be honest. That's wonderful. Well, thank you, because you're doing great work. It's so needed. Uh, we need to get one of those uh, North Fork Food Institute going or something here. Um, you know, I'm not as far out, and it's, you know, there's not as many farmers and food producers right where I am. And, um, you know, you don't feel the same sense of community that I know exists when I go out to the East End. So I'm glad you're out there and you're doing that work, and I hope to learn from what you're doing and bring some of that work here. Do you yeah, have any, um, we're just about I mean, out of time. We have, um, yeah, we have local farms. Uh, you know, we have farms farther west as well. So if anyone's interested to join in, um, have, you know, engage in our community, just visit eastendfood.org and um, let's stay in touch. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kate, for joining us. Um, and if you have any events or anything that you, information you want to share, please share with me and I will share with my listeners. And everybody out there who has joined us for this past hour, thank you for joining us and have a wonderful Thanksgiving. I will not be having my show next week because it's Thanksgiving. So have a great holiday and I will see you all the following week. Bye for now and thank you so much, Kate. Have a great thank holiday. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye-bye. All right. Bye, everyone. <laughs> 